0: Hi, this is Rachel Elmerie Cover. We've got a special guest today with us, Annette. She's going to tell us a little bit about herself, and then we're going to ask her some questions.
1: Great. Hi, Rachel. I'm Annette Schuster. I'm, gosh, I'm a mom, I'm a grandma, I'm a great-grandma, and um, I also have a passion for working in the area of sexual abuse awareness and prevention education and victim advocacy.
0: Okay, um, we're going to ask you, how did you choose your this as your career?
1: I don't know that I, ch- I, I guess I chose it, but I think it it really chose me because of my story. I um, was sexually and physically and emotionally abused from the time I was about five until I was 12 years old, which kind of really set the background and the framework for my life. It definitely wasn't my my life plan that this is the kind of work I wanted to do, but. As I did my own recovery work and understood my own story, it became my passion. Okay.
0: What are some of the challenges you face in educating people about sexual abuse?
1: I think the greatest challenge is, you know, I I, I just think not just our culture, but I think everyone tends to want to live in denial that this could be a possibility that they need to be concerned about in their own home, in their churches, in their schools, in their places their children, you know, attend where it's at sports clubs or music or anything that their kids participate in. I think we want to believe that we live in a safe world when we don't. And so when people are living in fear or they live in denial, it makes it very hard to um, people to want to listen so for instance if i go to an airport and i tell people i do counseling they will talk to me and if they're on my flight they'll talk to me until we land if we're sitting anywhere near each other but if i tell them i teach sexual abuse awareness and prevention education most times they will say oh that's 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 great and they'll walk away and not talk to me again so i i think people are afraid
0: i would have to say you're probably right um what have you learned about male sexual abuse
1: i've I've learned although there are no statistics that I'm aware of that back up what I'm going to say that it it is just like with with female sexual abuse, it is much more prevalent than anybody could ever know. you know with statistics, the only thing we have is people who've actually reported their abuse to police. And they have become part of a statistic. Well, most victims never report their abuse. That's true whether you're male or female. But in working with men, I found as hard as it is for women to report their abuse to anybody, whether it's a friend, a counselor, a parent, you know, anybody, it's much more difficult for men because there's that assumption that men are strong if that this shouldn't happen to men. And if it does happen to men, then maybe they're gay. And there's just so, there's just different levels of shame attached to male sexual abuse. You know, it's different for male and female. and One's not worse or better. But I think men have an even harder time talking about it than women do.
0: No, I can see that. It's, that has been what I have noticed as well. Usually it requires... Yeah lots of alcohol involved before they'll even talk about it.
1: Or I have a fairly new client that really, as they were talking about, he was talking about his story. He, he perfectly described having been date raped to me, Um, having gone to a party, having had something to drink and not remembering anything else the entire rest of the night. But very, very clear that there had been, Sexual activity, um, and he has no idea with who or, or anything. He just knows that it happened, and, um, and so for men who who are gay, they feel like they they can't report sexual abuse because they're gay and no one's going to believe them. Just like women often are 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 very right and concerned about whether they'll be believed or not. No, that's
0: that's a big issue was just not believing people when they come forward.
1: Well and then you add the complications of the way that our legal system is set up, which is if you do if you do make a report to police and police find that they have enough of what they consider enough evidence to be able to arrest somebody and, and press charges, then what happens with that, even if a, a, a person that's been accused has been arrested, gone to an initial court hearing, those charges then go to the prosecutor's office and there's a prosecutorial team that decides whether there's a very high likelihood that they'll get a guilty verdict if it goes to trial or they can get some kind of guilty plea. And if they, even with some confessions, even if there's a confession sometimes, they'll feel like they, the likelihood of getting one, a plea or a verdict is, is very slim. They just won't prosecute the case. So they'll drop those charges and there's no public record of any of that taking place. And because there's been no criminal charges, you cannot look it up anywhere on a court website. Um, if someone's trying to get uh, fingerprint clearance cards, they can, because there's no record of any charges and and any convictions. So even if you do go forward and the police and the prosecutor's office believe, believe you, it doesn't mean it's going to result in justice.
0: Yeah, no, it's, I mean, I mean, I wonder if it's like that for any other crimes as much.
1: Well, I... I don't know why it would not be the same for for crimes. And all crimes take courage to report. But I think reporting, and it's a huge violation, right, of your safety and your person, like if your house gets broken into. Um, but there's just something very, very different and very personal about um, wanting and needing justice if you're going to go through the courage of exposing your story. And if you're a child making a report, then you're protected by law. Your name doesn't end up anywhere. Um, Nobody, unless you're involved in the case, nobody knows who it is. But if you're an adult, you're not protected. So um, you expose yourself. Nobody's too embarrassed about their house getting broken into, but there is always just a very detrimental shame when you've been sexually violated.
0: Uh, Yes, most definitely. Um, You work with a lot of different countries. What have you, what has been your experience in noticing the differences working with each culture?
1: Well, to be fair, it's, Probably been about It's been about 10 years since I worked in other countries. I was in Bosnia, Croatia, Serbia, and Germany. Um, but in some ways I found things very similar. It, when I was getting ready to leave the United States to go work, people here said, oh gosh, yes, you need to go there and do that because they've got a terrible problem over there. And when I got to Bosnia, which was my primary place of teaching, I heard, oh, well, we're only doing this because we're trying to become part of the European Union. I know you in the United States have a really big problem, but we don't. And um, so I think there's a similarity. Nobody believes they have a problem. And everybody else has a bad problem but but them. But one of the challenges there is, at least at that point in time, there was really no structure for making reports. Um as difficult as it is for children to be believed here, there just wasn't an authority structure for anyone to go to. There wasn't any call the police and the Department of Social Services, and there just wasn't a structure. They were just beginning to try to think about creating those things, but it didn't exist. So um, I think as I think as inadequate as our system is, and I mean, we've made a lot of progress over the last 30 or 40 years. Um, They're just in their infancy of trying to figure out what do you do? What are the effects of trauma? How do you, how do you even go through a whole reporting and legal process? Um, So it really felt a lot more hopeless over there. Like, while I could tell them what it teach the kids, but if was and what it wasn't, Mm -hmm. um, telling them to go to a school counselor or pedagogue or to go to a school director um, so that there's an authority structure like we would have here, a reporting structure. There was none. So my hope, my biggest hope when I was teaching there is to let them know that no matter what the circumstances were, it wasn't their fault. It was the responsibility of the person that harmed them. Even if there was nobody that believed them, nothing that could be done to stop it, they had done nothing to cause this to happen. Um, Yet school after school, there were kids who who reported abuse to myself and my interpreter or translator. Um, And it was really difficult not to have somewhere for them to go to get help.
0: Yeah, that can be frustrating and disheartening.
1: Yeah, it was very hard.
0: Um, How much have you noticed... A, spiritual abuse and sexual abuse being tied together?
1: Well, I think there's a lot of layers to answering that question. I think in one sense, all sexual abuse has spiritual abuse attached to it. I think, um, you know, even if I have someone that comes and shares with me that, isn't attached to any particular belief system or not, or may just clearly believe they don't believe in any God, eventually within our work, they will say, well, really, if God was such a good and loving God, then why did he allow? So um, so I think there is there is spiritual abuse with all sexual abuse, but there is also formal structures of spiritual abuse, whether it's cults where there's and all abuse has rituals to it but whether it's a cult like mm-hmm. a spiritual abuse whether it's um whether it's an ongoing harm of people who might be in churches that report abuse and the perpetrator gets protected and the victim is silenced or they don't know how to help or care for the victims so victims are victim shamed i i think spiritual abuse weaves its way very deeply into all sexual abuse, very different layers of it.
0: Mm. What has been your struggle working with the church in the United States when it comes to sexual abuse?
1: I think again, it's their sense of either that, that denial that it's going to happen here. There'll be churches who may say, You know, we're a really close-knit family. We know everybody here. Um, This type of thing doesn't happen here, but we all know each other very well. So that's not a need. I've had one church tell me that, you know, their focus is on evangelism and not social issues. And I could talk about that one for a long time. Um, Well, I mean, elaborate on that. (laughs) Well... (laughs) it was very clear that I I didn't have a voice and wasn't allowed to speak to that. But if I had been given permission to speak to that, it was like, how do you expect to evangelize people who believe God isn't good or God is equal to their abuser when they've been sexually abused? If if you can't address those, those wounds, how, how are you to evangelize and tell somebody there's a good, a good God, a good Jesus you're supposed to believe in and trust with your life when Their questions will be, well, either they're not good because they allowed it to happen. I'm being punished for something because they allowed it to happen. So I must be bad and they must be good or they must be bad and don't care about me. So but as I in that particular case, as I started to try to ask questions, I was quickly shut down. Um, there are some churches that do a really good job, and I think while the Catholic Church is the first church where it was exposed on a really international basis, and they, you know, while I have no doubt abuse continues in their church, like it continues in every church and every denomination, um, they they raised awareness so. Churches, some churches really care and they work hard to create children's programs, structure their buildings so that there's accountability. We um, do good education for parents and staff and leaders and kids when it's appropriate. Um, there, but I find the percentage of churches and denominations that do that are very small in comparison to those who just don't want to. So I don't remember how many years ago it was now, but there was a friend of mine that was doing some research in a social working program she was in. And she wanted to do a survey of churches pertaining to their knowledge of sex trafficking. So we were gonna combine that along with their knowledge of sexual abuse and how it might play out in the church and the need to do prevention. And we sent out like 400 surveys and we got about 10 back. Um, most on the part where it says, do they believe sexual abuse is a potential issue in the church? They said, no. But there were a few that were actually honest and said, it's just too expensive. And frankly, we don't have the time for it or the problem was that it could bring up. Uh, and, and so that was definitely very discouraging to hear. So, and that's part of why the program that I've created, we actually offer it for free. So there are no excuses for not being able to offer this and, and um, make churches a safe place. But I think there again, fear and then denial make it very okay. difficult. Um,
0: so it's, um, tell us a little bit about your program.
1: So it's called Kids Need to Know Foundation, Inc., and I I created it back when I went back to start my bachelor's degree so that I could move forward and get my master's in counseling, and the first project we had was we needed to do something that could somehow benefit society, and I thought, oh, really? That's an awful big ask. I don't know how I'm supposed to benefit society in, in a big way. But then I thought about my own story, and I thought, you know, if I, if I, you know, if I had only known that I should keep telling until somebody actually believed me, would my abuse have stopped? Would I have been believed? Would I have been able to be a better advocate? Um, and so, that's where it's the name "Kids Need to Know" comes up came from. So back in two thousand and two two thousand and I wrote my very first drafts of this program um, for school and have and probably revised it every year since then. And then around 2002 created a nonprofit foundation where we teach free sexual abuse awareness and prevention education to uh, churches, um, public institutions, schools. We teach it to parents and neighborhoods, wherever somebody actually wants to listen. Uh, we do that. And then also I consult with churches to help them establish policies and procedures and safe physical premises for their their children so that we can reduce that risk that abuse takes place. Mm
0: -hmm. Tell us a little bit about your training at the Allender Center and in your education.
1: So I graduated from what is now the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology in 2002. It was Mars Hill Graduate School at that point in time. And and there were so many things that were very unique about their, their training. First of all, you didn't get to just go to a seminary and say you're a Christian counselor. You really, you had to learn how to read text, soul, and culture. How do you engage the text? Um, the culture and how you can engage the stories of those where there's been harm. So their approach really had good solid theory, but it also helped you understand how to integrate the theory with theology as you invited people into understanding their story and how they got to where they are. And, um, and so Another thing that I think was pretty unique is that we really had to be doing our own work at the very same time that we were learning how to do the work. And so that was really powerful in our practicums. Um, we learned about t- telling our story, learning how to be attuned, how to listen to story, um, and how to be willing to share story and let other people engage us in our stories. So it was. it was... Um, it was really life changing for me. And then I think if I'm correct, it was 2011 was the first cohort of, um, lay and professional people that, um, that the Allender Center took through a whole process. And that was good because I had, I had graduated back in 2004. So it was good because as with all fields, um, you learn more we know we knew a whole lot more in two thousand and eleven about how the brain works and how trauma affects the brain and and, and the entire body than we knew back in two thousand and four. We know even more now, so I think ongoing training is really important, but it just continued it reemphasized the story work that I'd already learned about when I was in school. It was just good to learn more okay. And one thing that's great about that program is it takes lay people who haven't had any professional training and helps them learn how to engage the stories of the wounded in churches. And, and they're not professionally trained, but they, they go through extensive training to understand the dynamics of abuse, their own stories, and how to, in a safe way, engage others as a lay person and, when, and then when people needed to see somebody professional, how to know what to do with that.
0: Um, so. What is some of the best advice you could give victims out there?
1: Hmm. Oh, gosh, there's so much. To, even as adults, not to give up in trying to find a community that will hear them know how to embrace them and help them be heard and go through their story. They need a community of people to walk through the tragedies, the horrors of what their, their stories were and also to help them walk into something that's healthier for their lives. Begin to figure out like what does really matter to them and to Oh gosh, to un just to unravel, I think, all of the lies that come with being sexually abused and understand how it has affected their life, how they have then responded to their abuse and how it's affecting their life and relationships now and, and begin to dream about what they'd like to do differently as they move forward. And then also I think victims don't understand Um, that they have there's a lot of rights that they have in most states where many many states there's no statute of limitations of reporting your abuse Um, and what we do know about perpetrators is they really don't ever just abuse one person they will continue to abuse unless they're stopped and so although the process is it's is it's just a very exhausting, difficult um, process that is always available to them if that's something they want, and in most states there are, um, there is the opportunity to also file civil suits, and especially in the evangelical world, people will say, "Well, you're not, you know, you're not supposed to sue your brother or sister in Christ," but the reality is it's very rare that the criminal justice system can offer first any type of justice to the victim, but also any, if, they, if they can't follow through and they don't file prosecute the case to the end, then there's never any exposure of the perpetrator. So there are numerous stories um, that I could tell where because of the ability to file a civil suit, perpetrators were able to be exposed they were able to be stopped um, in the sense that like if they're teachers in schools and they have this long history of abuse but it never got it never got exposed through the criminal system it has made it does make a significant impact in the civil system so it isn't just about money the ability to file a civil suit there was a law here that we were trying to get changed in Arizona about three years ago, which we did make changes in the law. And there was one man who told a story that he filed a lawsuit for $1 and he didn't care about the money, but the person in the state that he grew up in that had been abusing him was a judge. And the civil suit gave him an avenue to expose that person and and so that the abuse could be stopped where there wasn't that opportunity through the criminal system. And it, it just sounds odd, what I'm saying. But until you've spent a lot of time beginning to understand how it works, it is very odd. So I think for victims to to explore, not not out of a sense of revenge, because you're never going to be satisfied if you pursue criminal or civil Um, avenues of trying to find some justice but out of a sense of I am a victim this person has harmed me and really likelihood is he or she has continued to harm others and justice to me is that there's exposure I'm believed and and possibly that person can be stopped and it certainly doesn't hurt that sometimes there are financial benefits from it but you consider how much money people pay in counseling and the cost that sexual abuse has had in their mental illness, their relations, you know, their relationships. I don't think that there's anything inappropriate about the possibility of getting some financial compensation. You know, if somebody goes through a criminal process, Mm -hmm. they're going to be asked to pay restitution well, if you can't go through a criminal process, then this really is just a form of restitution. Yeah, no. That's available to people in most no, states.
0: I do a... Uh, I, I interview a lot of um, survivors, and one of the things we talk about, like, how has this impacted you financially, and how has this affected your career, and how has this affected your relationships, and your, so, like, your ability to have a social life. And, uh, I mean... Usually it's not all of those things, but there's usually two or three check marks on how those things have affected them. And I don't think even victims realize how much this has taken from them, even like just financially or career-wise or what they would have done differently career-wise mm-hmm. if this hadn't happened, especially with CPTSD basically changing the brain. And so, I mean, that can be definitely an effective like have a huge impact on those who have been uh, long-term like education. is hard to focus on school when your brain's not pro- processing mm-hmm. correctly.
1: Right. And it's not just our brains, our bodies are affected, our immune systems. You know, there's, there's a significant amount of research that talks about, you know, different types of arthritis cancers, um, Multiple autoimmune diseases can be traced back to there being trauma, so one of the ways that they began to discover this um, there's a, a test called it's called Aces and it's really a test that helps evaluate the kind of childhood experience it's called adverse childhood experiences and And the doctor helped discover this because he began to see patterns in kids that had been abused that were showing up as medical issues so yeah it it's relationships it's mental health it's physical health um there's a lot that it takes from victims and you can money will never replace those things but sometimes money can help someone who finally is able to get into counseling and then has a the passion decides that they want to go to school or it, it can help them build the life that yeah, got And there's a lot
0: of them. treatments out there like EMDR and neurofeedback that aren't necessarily mm-hmm. always covered by insurance.
1: Well, and even, and even when treat therapy is covered by insurance, it's really horribly inadequate. You might get, anywhere from six to maybe 15, 20, max 20 visits in a year. But that is not going to do much for a victim. They don't hardly trust their, their stories with somebody in 20 visits. Um, So to say they can have six, 12, 15, 20 visits in a year and then, well, hold on, no matter where you were when you were in processing or beginning to trust your therapist, come back next year when you've used the rest of your sessions, right? Or when you're ready for new sessions. So even if you have insurance, it often is really inadequate when it comes to Yeah, and health.
0: then a lot of people, I mean, some of the better therapists don't take insurance because they right. don't have to.
1: Right. Well, because they don't have to, not necessarily, yes and no, but um, they also don't want to have dictated to them what they can and cannot do for therapy. You know, there needs to be good practices. There needs to be guidelines. But most most therapy modalities through insurance are going to be brief therapy. They're going to be, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is beneficial. Their EMDR is more and more a standard now of of trauma care and insurances will cover some of that, but it still isn't adequate for what most victims need. So I think sometimes there are people, good therapists that don't do insurances because they really want to offer their clients the best they have. And so most, a lot of those therapists offer a sliding scale and they don't get paid what they would get paid if they were to work for insurances. because I really want to see victims have an opportunity to heal. Some do get their full fee and have clientele that can pay it, but ultimately it isn't about so much the money. It's about wanting people to have access to good care. Yes. And there are
0: definitely a lot of good counselors out there that, you know, work for peanuts. So, um, and cause I mean, I did feedback, but that wasn't necessarily through a counselor and, I would say, I mean, I was in there four days a week. I mean, that's just, that's time
1: consuming. Right. Right. And, you know, the people that have gone to school have had to pay quite a bit for their training. And, you know, they have to earn an income as well. And yet the reality is abuse often harms people's ability to make the incomes that they could make. So they need to be able to have the treatment so that they yeah, can get it's,
0: better. No, it's a, I mean, yeah. Cause I mean, I think, you know, the impact of trauma on some level almost always has an impact on abilities for us to earn just because we have <clears throat> emotional sick days where we can't get out of bed because we're depressed today and mm-hmm. more so than, mm-hmm person who doesn't have trauma so or just all the autoimmune and all the health issues that come with it
1: mm-hmm.
0: so right trying to balance all of that especially with our healthcare in america but that's a whole other issue
1: right well and then you think about it i mean I don't know enough to say what every country offers, but if you live in a country that doesn't have a system that even deals with abuse, then you're not going to have, I mean, the field of um, psychotherapy is not common in most countries. You know, there's, there's a lot of countries that don't have psychotherapists and they don't have counseling and they don't have medication either. You know, they don't, They don't know. They don't diagnose mental illness. Um, So I think, in one sense, we have a lot here in America that it is advanced. um, But I also think we have so much more that we need to learn, so that we can continue to reduce uh, the risk of abuse to help those who are offenders. that's a whole nother story of talking about what need you know, kind of what's the mindset and what goes on for offenders and what is their recovery if there is recovery for them. How do they reintegrate into society, the recidivism rate I mean there's so much and you, you, we can't just look at the victim, you know, we have to also look at those who are Yeah, I mean
0: and that's a whole other set of counseling and I mean you know, whether you're dealing, I mean, we have an episode coming up, um, and by the time this comes out, this it'll be out, um, with Dr. Anna Salter. I don't know if you've read.
1: Oh, I, I do. Pedophiles, let's see, rapists, pedophiles, and other sex offenders. I mean, she really has informed my work a lot, so that's yes. great you got to interview I her. I actually
0: interviewed her Saturday, so. so you'll
1: have to listen to that episode yeah definitely would love to I recommend her book all the time
0: Annette's coming back next week to finish her her interview thanks for listening I hope to hear from my audience if they are liking my shows and if you have comments, feedback that would be greatly appreciated Um, as always, you can contact us on our social media platforms or on rachelandrecovery.com And always listen to us and subscribe to your favorite podcast platform. Thanks, guys.